Hello, and welcome to RD and the Inbetweens. I'm your host, Kelly Priest, and every fortnight I talk to a different guest about researchers, development, and everything in between. Hello, and welcome to this episode of RD and the Inbetweens. I'm delighted in this episode to be talking to my colleague, Dr. Jonathan Doney. Jonathan and I are going to be talking about publishing your research as a book and specifically being unsuccessful in trying to get your thesis published as a book, but thinking about how that material and the learning from that process of failure or rejection can inform other opportunities further down the line. So, Jonathan, are you happy to introduce yourself? I'm Dr. Jonathan Doney. I'm a lecturer in education at the School of Education, University of Exeter, and my specialism in teaching is history of education and education policy. Great. Thank you very much. And so we, we're going to talk um, today a little bit about experiences of kind of book publishing processes because one of the things that particularly humanities and social science students when they come out of their research degree are often thinking about the kind of you know can I publish my thesis as a book and um, that is something that you try to do is that right? That's right yeah with without huge success I would say uh, but I did learn a lot of lessons from from that process which I'm willing willing and happy to share. So how did, when you decided that you, or when you were thinking about publishing um, your thesis as a book, what kind of, how did you go about investigating whether or not that was possible? Okay, so um, it might be helpful to, to give a bit of background and context to my sort of wider academic networks and involvement, because um, at that point, I had been a co-editor of a journal in the history of education, Okay. Um, with my supervisor we, we shared it um, and so I was kind of used to dealing with editors um, understanding the process of peer review and things like that and I got in touch with a couple of people from different publishing houses who were very keen you know well you've just done a PhD we would love to publish it they tended to be um, I think the term used is vanity publishers. So these publishers where you pay a large sum of money and they publish your book as a monograph. Um, first of all, I didn't have a large sum of money because I'd just been a grad student for three years. But also I was warned by, by my sort of academic champions that what you really need is a book that is published by a reputable company. So go to Powergrave go to um, Routledge, go to someone like that and see if they'll publish it. Um, so I approached, I approached someone I knew at Powergrave and they said, oh yes, we get a lot of this kind of thing. Here is some information about how to, basically how to show us that you are preparing a book and not just changing a couple of words in a thesis. Um, and I think that was really useful because, you know, a thesis is, is written for examiners and no one else really. I mean, maybe those who, who love you or who you love might read the acknowledgements. But on the whole, um, a, a thesis is written with the examiners in mind. It's, they are your audience. And so the suggestion really was that you don't just say, let's change a few bits. You actually take the content of your thesis and restructure it, um, maybe rework it. 
So instead of thinking what I'm going to do is quickly convert a thesis into a book, actually what you do is think I'm going to write a book for which I already have the bulk of the content, but I need to express some of that in different ways. I need to give a different sort of introduction. Um, maybe I need to express some of the findings in more, uh, in broader terms for a wider audience. So I sort of sat down with this guidance and, and prepared a proposal, which was basically my PhD for a different audience. Um, my PhD is quite, is quite, um, quite different from a lot of PhDs because my main contribution to knowledge is a methodological one. So my PhD basically started off as a historical inquiry, but ended up being, here's a new method for undertaking historical inquiry. But I framed it in the, in the material I submitted. First of all, I framed it as the content, the history of religious education. Um, that's got a very short list of people who'd want to read it. Um, and so I, I, in fact, in preparation for this podcast, I looked back at some of the feedback I got on my initial thing. And it was, you know, this is a really interesting method. It's a very interesting proposal, but the audience is so limited that we can't suggest that it's printed. Um, so the, the sense I had was I'd miss the target okay. because what, what book publishers want is something that's going to sell because that's how they make their money. Um, a history of RE in the 1960s in England, however much I want it to be the case, is never going to be in the top 10 in the Times um, weekend supplements. So... The, the feedback, as I say, was, you know, it's interesting, but not interesting enough. It's too niche. Uh, it's too specialised. Um, and I spoke to another, a couple of other editors and they said, you know, broadly speaking, the fundamental thing that editors, uh, you know, commissioning editors are looking for is, will this sell? Will it be a textbook? Um, so actually what I did is, is looked again at the content and said, I don't think I would buy that book, to be honest. What did that feel like for them to come back and sort of say, basically say, yeah, it's interesting, but it's not interesting enough, given that you'd kind of dedicated three years of your life to this work. And obviously you do find it interesting and there are many other people that find it interesting, obviously. Well, I wouldn't say many others, Kelly, but a, a, a few. Um, I think on the one hand, I was I, obviously I was disappointed because my my career plan was finish the PhD, publish a monograph, be the expert, get a job, you know, e e easy pathway to professorial appointment. Um, I think I think I agreed with some of the feedback, which shocked me slightly. I mean, I know I know that my area is niche and I know that it's very specialised. Um, now, obviously, I'm saying that with the benefit of hindsight. Since then, I've had a book contract and I've submitted a manuscript. So um, that is obviously going to change, change my view on the feedback. I think what I also learned, uh, what, what I also felt with some of the feedback was it's actually very personal. Um, and I've since discovered that both for that and an unsuccessful submission for the later book were sent to people in my field, because my field is narrow, um, who think that my cutting edge approach is inappropriate. And so some of the feedback was actually quite personal. And that, that was difficult to deal with because 
it was it was the typical reviewer too you know if i was writing this book i would have written something else um and the reasons i would have written those is because you're wrong so that that was harder i think than the rejection per se if that makes sense that's a really important thing to acknowledge is kind of you know the appreciating that you agree with some of the feedback but also you know even though we we talk about kind of peer review as this wonderful objective kind of idealized process actually it is incredibly subjective fast forward a little bit then to the book that you're working on now so this it's come out of that original um book that you proposed out of your thesis that had that wasn't accepted that's right isn't it yeah, I mean, it's kind of it's, it's a development in two ways. So first of all, um, I applied and was successful in getting a British Academy postdoc fellowship yeah. after my PhD. And that project was basically to take the method that I devised in my PhD and use it in a broader um, sweep of education policy, still focused on religious education, but rather than just one event, looking at a series of events from 1944 to the present day um and so that that sort of expanded the horizon but also as part of that there was an opportunity to be published through the british academy imprint which is with oxford university press um so i applied for that opportunity and um again the feedback the feedback from one reviewer was you know this is really interesting potentially very important uh, methodology could be useful across a broad spectrum of policy areas and another one was basically this is this is not a good idea. This is completely inappropriate. Um, straight, you know, I'm disappointed that the writer has not referred to the work of scholar X. Um, that scholar X being the person who'd done the review. So it's the typical kind of you haven't done what I would have done. Yes. So the British Academy said no, which was disappointing again because um, obviously having an Oxford University publication would have been a good career starter um, but what I did is I took I took the proposal that I prepared for that to another publisher I don't think I changed any of it and simply said please don't send it to scholar x for review uh, and because you know I was advised that that is possible and I thought you know and I said, you know, if you need more information about why, and they were like, no, that's fine. You know, we recognize that there are people who are not appropriate reviewers. So it was sent to two others and it came back with, um, you know, a couple of suggestions of how I might slightly improve the text along the lines of, you know, some of the work I've done is international comparison. And they, one of the comments was to just make the reason for the international comparison a little bit more obvious. But otherwise uh, they accepted it. Um, they wanted to change the title and the title that they proposed I was not happy with and I was I was stuck because I thought well you know here I am on the cusp of a monograph contract do I want to argue about the title um, well I did argue about the title and they accepted the title I suggested so both in the title and in the content of the book the book is now very much a methodological explanation and guide to statement archaeology which is my thing yeah and it uses a series of case studies from re two of which came from the phd and two of which are more recent work 
as part of the postdoc. Um, so in that respect, significant elements of the PhD are now included in the monograph. A couple of other bits I've published separately as journal articles. Um, and the method, the method sort of which begins and ends the, the, the monograph that be published early next year, hopefully, um, is just an extension of the material that I've prepared for the PhD. So it, it kind of feels like it is the monograph from the thesis with a couple of bits added, but it's restructured in quite a significant way. So that instead of being a book about the history of RE, it's a book about statement archaeology and the history of RE are, uh, is the basis of the worked examples. But all the way through it says, you know, and think about how you would use this in your study. This is the kind of question that I have asked here. What kind of question would you ask? And, and so on. So it, it is quite a different beast now from what it was. And I think I think because of that, it, it, it has a better position in the market and will be more useful to to people who aren't interested in RE. And I think it's that that seems to be so the thing that when I talk to people about getting their thesis published, that's that this this seems to be the core of it is actually, you know, it's you hope it might just be changing a few words here and there, but it's actually in, in a lot of cases a complete reframing because, like you said, you write a thesis for your examiners. It's for a very particular audience and a very particular end goal. And so is constructed in a very particular way. And if you're kind of wanting to reach the wider academic audience, but also the kind of potentially the wider, you know, um, student and or public audience, actually, you know, a lot of people are, are reframing the work based on what is what is more of interest to the field rather than kind of the requirements of examination. I think that's absolutely right. And I think I would encourage people when they're thinking about how to develop their thesis into a book is, is think about as many different possible groupings who might be interested. Mm. So, I mean, like I say, my book is primarily a methodological handbook with a lot of stuff about religious education policy. But actually, the audience that would be interested, you've got um, master's level students undertaking their own research projects, PhD yeah. students. But you've also got historians of education, policy makers and policy shapers, people who are interested in social history. You know, there's quite a lot of social history in contextualizing some of these policy moves. Um, initial teacher trainees who are going to go into the humanities. So think as broadly as possible about who might read your book and how you can sort of tick as many boxes. And one of the big things I say, you know, from experience is if there's an international market, so I think I added a paragraph about the US. I've got quite a lot of stuff in there already about Scandinavia because that's where I do my comparison. Um, yeah. That ticks an international box, which, which keeps publishers happy because they mm. can then think about uh, marketing this book beyond, beyond our own shores, whether it's into Europe or the US or any sort of Anglophone um, type country. So think broadly and then kind of write in a way that um, tickles the ears of those sorts of people. It, yeah, it is going from the the very specific niche kind of contribution that you make in the thesis and and broadening back out again, kind of doing almost doing going in the opposite direction to what you've been what you've been doing for a number of years. I, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I you know some of the some of the books, the monographs that I've read that have been PhD theses. Um, they maintain the level of detail 
that a PhD thesis requires, but they contextualize it differently, if that makes sense. Um, whereas I think probably I would argue for mine, I, I stepped back from some of the, the detail. For example, you know, I, I had five or 6,000 words just on how Foucault does historical inquiry. Now, most sane people would say that's too much in a thesis, let alone a book. I think I've got a page and a half in the book about it. I mean, the other thing that you can do, which I did quite often, is where you where you don't want to move away from the detail, you can write in general terms in the book and you can reference your PhD because with you know the e-library, they're available for people to consult. Absolutely. And so you don't have to give up that sense of of the detail and the richness and the integrity of what you did. Thinking a little bit more about about the process because i think that's something that feels really almost sort of mystical to people so you sent in a proposal so what kind of format did that take so most publishing houses that i'm aware of will publish their format you know if you look look on the website for you know author submission to and then your chosen publisher yeah um, they will usually have some kind of pro forma and it's it you know they're there are similarities so you know proposed title give a 300 word description of what the book is you usually have to um give chapter outlines you know chapter title what the chapter will cover how many words you expect it to be and quite a lot of stuff about intended audience yep and also an analysis of competitor um competitor titles so by being in the system of, of a submitting author, I've also been asked to review a few publications in my field as proposals. Um, and some of them, you know, this is this is the only book on this topic. It's essential because it's core reading for these modules and others. You get a list of 15 or 20 com competitor titles and nothing about why this is different. Yeah. So I think those kind of really those kind of marketing positioning in the market kind of questions are quite important. And I guess that's, that's got a lot of similarities to how you position the the scholarship as kind of filling a a gap as as having originality. It's just thinking about it in less in terms of a, original contribution to knowledge as it is to mark as as it is thinking about the market but it's, it sounds like it's doing something very similar. I think it's a similar kind of approach in the mind. You know, that's the kind of thing you have to think of. Why, what is it that I'm going to do that either hasn't been done before, or, I mean, what, one thing that I've seen quite often is books that have been published 30 years ago that are key texts, Yeah. you know, are out of date. And this, mm. this will update the established scholarship in the field kind of thing. Um, uh, so th those kind of things are important. Um, I was very lucky because because of my sort of contacts, I had someone who had recently submitted a successful book proposal to Oxford University Press and they sent me their proposal. Oh. Now, obviously, the topics were completely different. The structure was different, but you kind of get a, an idea of what kind of things make. I mean, it's a bit like doing a, a funding bid or an application for a funded PhD you know if you look at successful ones you kind of get an idea of what what works yeah um, so I would encourage you know particularly early career academics if they're looking for their ask your ask your existing networks even if their fields are slightly different or their topics are slightly different 
um, and be, I'm always willing to share my, my proposals both for funding and for um, publication because I think one of the ways we learn how to do it is by looking at ones that have worked. So you submitted the proposal, they got back and said yep. No, no, oh no, if only it was as easy as that. Um, so I submitted I submitted to Routledge and Routledge published on their website who their commissioning editors are for different fields. Now, because of a project I'd worked on with other colleagues, there, there is someone who worked in religious education. So what I did first was sent the proposal to him and said, I realise this may not be your field, but you know, could you have a quick look? Because there was already some kind of relationship. Could you have a quick look and or let me know who I should send it to? Yeah. And, and he said, oh, yes, the person you need is my colleague, so-and-so. So I sent it to her. Um, actually, she, she is the policy um, editorial lead, because that's where the book has been. That's another thing to sort of to perhaps come back to is where do you position your book? Yeah. So um, she had a quick look at it and said, let's have a quick chat. Um, and there was an initial just one-to-one -one conversation with her. And she said, I think, you know, add some detail to this maybe change this, be open to the possibility of um, the title being being adapted. Um, and once I'd done that, she then takes it to the editorial board meeting, you know, with her support. Yeah. They came yeah. back with a couple of suggestions. Uh, sorry, and in between then, so I, I discussed it with her, then it went to review, and I had the reviewer's comments back to me yeah. to, to change the proposal before it went to the editorial board then the editorial board agreed it subject to a change of title and then once once they've agreed it and you've agreed with them the changes you get offered a contract and the contract is to produce the manuscript within a given amount of time so how long did that take between between the kind of initial contact and getting the contract so i think the initial contact was january and i signed the contract in september wow um now that's partly because my commissioning editor was off sick for a while but i mean that's not an unusual that's mm. not an unusual time scale particularly if there is a bit of toing and throwing yeah um and i think it also depends on the publishing house because i think some some that have big structures you might send it to the person you think and they they without you knowing send it on to a colleague before it even gets any kind of indication it's a really important thing to be aware of that actually when it comes to book publishing things can move incredibly slowly yeah i think i think that's right and i think i mean if it, taking the whole thing from when i first approached that publisher which was what are we now 2020 it was january 2018 and i i have just finished completing the page proofs in the last couple of days wow um, so there'll still be another month or so before it goes to press yeah but it, it you know obviously part of that time i've been writing the book yeah because <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing i didn't want to do what some people do is they write the book and then they submit a proposal mm -hmm. And then they might have to do quite a lot of changing according to what proposal changes the editorial board require. Whereas I had the structure of the book in my mind, and then I've written it according to the proposal we've agreed. 
so I guess I've got two questions then on that. So, I mean, even though you had the structure, you, you know, you hadn't written the thing as a, as a whole before you went to proposal, it sounds like from your, um, from your the from your PhD and and from the work that you'd already done, you you probably I'm guessing you had quite a reasonable amount of text already. I had the basis of a lot of the text. I mean, for the two chapters that came from the PhD, it it, it wasn't a copy copy and paste job, but it it wasn't um it wasn't a starting from scratch. You know, there were chunks, particularly chunks of primary evidence that I did just copy and paste across. Um, but I think what I would say is before I sent the book's proposal in, I knew what I'd found and I knew what the structure of the arguments were. Yeah. Because, you, you know, I think for, for this route, the book chapter summaries were about four or five hundred words per chapter. Yeah. So you need to know enough about what you're going to say, what's, what's your supporting evidence to be able to, to, to satisfy them that it's not just a you know you, you can't be too general you have to be specific yeah you know, i'll talk about this act i'll talk about these policymakers in the process when did you actually start writing the book did you wait until you got the contract or did you start kind of a bit earlier well i think i think as i i'd started writing a book um <laughs> a while ago probably after i'd finished my phd because because i knew that there were bits that i wanted to publish so in terms of sort of text on page, I suppose by the time I submitted the proposal, I might have had 40,000 words written out of 85,000 total. Okay. So yeah, sort of uh, with half of the book written, I mean, a lot of that was just placeholders that says in this paragraph describe, um, in this paragraph account for. Yeah. Um, and then you kind of fill those gaps in. But I was... I'd heard stories of people who'd written a book, written a proposal based on the book they'd written, had the proposal chopped around and accepted, and then they basically were starting again anyway. Yeah. So I thought the sensible thing was just, you know, it's bad enough writing one book. I certainly didn't want to write <laughs> two for the price, you know, two books yeah. for one publication, if that makes sense. You've got to be, you've got to be persuasive enough to the publisher that they think, I won't say they think you finished the book, but that they think you can write the book. And also, I didn't say before, with the proposal, I had to send a completed chapter as an exemplar of my writing. Um, and that was one of the chapters that I'd already adapted from the PhD. So that was, that was okay. So by the time you're getting to the, the point of writing and you've done the proposal, you've submitted the example chapter, you've had all of those back and forth conversations, like you said, you've got such a clear idea of, of where the book is going. It's then kind of sitting, sitting down and doing the thing. Um, so we will, momentarily, we will gloss over <laughs> the process of, of writing as if okay. it's us and, and, you know, click your fingers, <laughs> magically, it happened. Um, so at what point did you send kind of drafts to your editor? Okay, so I, I didn't. Um they they issue the contract and initially my contract was for the complete book to be ready in april this year okay um once we got towards april i sent a very very nice email that <laughs> said you know this is this is not going to happen by april um can i have till july and because i also wanted to push back the publication date for 
for strategic reasons, I didn't want the book published in the current ref cycle. I wanted it published in the next ref cycle. So they said, well, yeah, bearing in mind you, you're not in a hurry to have it, then we're happy to put the date back. So I submitted the whole manuscript um, in July. Yeah. Um, and then the process after that is that, first of all, the, the editor who has commissioned the work reads the piece. Yeah. Basically to check that you've supplied what you agreed. Yeah, of course. Um, so I think it was three or four week turnaround and I had an email from her saying, you know, you've not only supplied what we asked for, but it's extremely well written, very engaging. Yeah. Which for a technical book on a documentary analysis technique, I think is, I said, can I put your comments on the back in the blurb? <laughs> uh, then it goes to copy editing. Um, so they then send back questions like, you know, you've sometimes you've used IZE, sometimes you've used ISE, which should it be throughout? Um, they ask questions about missing references or references that are incomplete. That takes about a month. Yeah. Then it goes to typesetting. And I think that took about another month. Um, so the bits, in a sense, the bits that they do take about a month, six weeks at a time. Yeah. And then you get an email saying, here's your galley proofs. Um, please let us have them back in three days. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, which I responded, thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, <laughs> I will have it done within the next fortnight. And so far it's been, oh, yes, of course, that's fine. Um, so I think, you know, don't, don't be afraid to say to your publisher, hang on a minute. You know, that's not a realistic time scale so the situation at the moment is that i've got i've got the marked up proofs i need to enter the corrections onto the system and then i won't see the text again until i get physical copies delivered um so there's no sort of submission of drafts along the way certainly in my experience i don't know how other publishers work but my sense is that they're, they're not interested once they've awarded the contract what they want is the finished text yeah so at what point or is there a point at which it's going to go out to um reviewers again so obviously the proposal went through a peer review process but does the book the manuscript as a whole go out for for review in any way well with this one no um i've got friends who have published with palgrave and when they submitted the manuscript that was read by a couple of external readers yeah. before it was accepted now obviously my take on that is my book is such a close um resemblance with the book that i was contracted to write that it didn't need to go out to ah. to review yeah or it may simply be that that's just a delay in the process and you know usually there's some kind of reward i suspect so you know it costs yeah it takes time um, I think that might vary by publisher. It's important to say that there will always be variations in, in, in exactly how publishers deal with and treat these different, these different elements. So, so the next time you see, you see it, it's going to be a physical copy. It's going to be a physical copy with, with covers and a title on it, which is going to be quite scary, but also exciting. Um, so have you seen things like cover art or anything yet? Yeah, I um, I was hoping I I've, I've got a friend who's got a a picture that was painted by a relative after that relative had read some of Foucault's work, 
and it's an amazing picture and i was hoping that that could be the cover of the book because it's got that link with foucault's theory and but i was sent a um a bland collection of 12 different covers okay. from which i could choose one so i chose in consultation with my artistic director stroke daughter um i chose one and they said yeah we can't use that one on your book because that's for a different series so in the end i the, the cover i've got is not the one i've chosen but it has the kind of corporate link with books in policy which is useful for me because i kind of wanted to position this more in policy than in um sort of religious education theology or anything else like that so i'm not hugely unhappy with the outcome um but it you know it it shows you how constrained you are as an author about some of these decisions yeah and i think the the thing you said about the identifying it as sort of visually as corporately as policy is interesting because you mentioned that earlier about um about it being part of the policy series and the kind of positioning of the book can you say something a little bit about that yeah i mean i think so as I sort of hinted earlier on, um, religious education is not a huge sector of educational research. It's a very niche field. And actually the work that I do is religious education by accident. My, my motivation and my intellectual project, if you like, is about understanding how policy development works in real life. It just so happens that I've worked on religious education because that's where I've had um, ways in or pre-existing knowledge. Uh, because I, you know, developing my career as, a, as an early career researcher, I, I want to develop an identity as a policy researcher. So to me, getting the book published in the policy stable was really important. Um, because to have it published as a, as a religious education book um, would, in a sense, keep me constrained within that very narrow field where I've already established a reputation. But by moving to a slightly broader um, intellectual silo, I suppose, there is scope for more development. And it's, I mean, it's already led to some interesting discussions about other education policy projects. So it's been successful. But I think, I think the piece of advice that I, I was given and I would pass on when thinking about publication is think about what you want your academic identity to focus around. Yeah because lots of us our phd is sort of a combination of what we're interested in but also what we can get funding for what our supervisors interests are where where there is a gap um, i mean i think of einstein as the example because his phd was nothing to do with theories of relativity um but that's what he's known for yeah he's not you know, not known for his phd work he's, he's known for his work afterwards and i i think it's an opportunity Getting a book published is, particularly as an early career researcher, is a huge thing, and it's a thing that gives you opportunities. So think about the opportunities. Where where do I want to be positioned? Yeah. And how do I then get this book, uh, this monograph? How do I then use that as a stepping stone to where I want to be? If that makes sense. Yeah. Absolutely. And within that i wondered if you could also say a bit more about so you said about delaying it because you didn't want it public you wanted it published in the next ref cycle so what was the what was the rationale for that okay so because of the way the ref works we we're, we're all encouraged or demanded to um submit 
you know, X number of papers at whatever, you know, five four star articles. I know that's ridiculous, but, you know, the, the pressure is to produce a certain number of four star articles or three star articles within the ref cycle. I'd already I've already achieved that through publications that I've done in the last few years. Um, so if I had got the book published in the current ref cycle, I would have just ended up with, you know, 10 articles from which to choose. And then when the clock resets for the new ref cycle, I would have had nothing. So it was suggested strongly to me, hold the book back. And then that gives you a starting point for the nef next ref cycle. You know, you've already got a good solid um, submission sitting on your desk waiting rather than starting from scratch. So it, it's simply that that kind of strategic planning. Yeah. And I think with what you said about kind of how you position yourself and how you want to position your academic career, these are incredibly important considerations, um, particularly with things that like the ref cycle and kind of forward forward planning, I guess. So what have you learned from the process of doing the book? I would say I've learned a lot. Um, you know, I've learned some some fairly fundamental practical skills. Like if you're going to write a book, you have to change the way that you live to make it possible. Okay. So um, for the, the year between getting the contract and submitting the manuscript, I spent the first two hours of every working day working on the book. Okay. Yeah. Um, because it doesn't write, you know, however much I wanted it to, it didn't write itself. No. Um, so there's the, sort of the practical level. I think on the, on the sort of career development level, you know, the, the importance of a book I'd completely underestimated when I, when it was first suggested, it was like, yeah, you know, well, I've done a couple of articles, a book, you know, a book will just be another thing like that, but it's not the way that it's viewed, particularly in terms of job applications and progression, a book is a big thing. Mm. Um, and and the, all, the publication house is a big thing. Yes. So, you know, pe people were asking me at interview, oh yeah, you've got a, you're, you're working on a book, who's publishing it? That was the question before, what's it about? Yeah. Which I think is interesting. So I've learned, I've learned that. I think I've learned more about how to negotiate the the process of putting together a submission, getting comments on it, sending it to the right person, um, you know, that sort of processual side of things. But I think what, what I've learned also is that many of my colleagues are hugely academically generous and also very interested in what I'm doing. Mm. I tended to think that my work was so niche that no one else really had any interest, but, but colleagues have been hugely supportive, very encouraging, um, I mean, it, it's a bit like when you start a new job, you know, how's the job going? How are you getting on? Yeah. Anything you need? Um, maybe like when you do a PhD, when people say, instead of saying, um, have you finished yet? They say, can I give you some money or buy you a meal? Um, <laughs> it's, it's a bit like that. You know, how's the book coming on? Yeah. It's, actually, it's quite encouraging. So I also have learned quite a lot about myself because I didn't, I didn't believe that I could do a PhD. I come from a very checkered educational background because I left school with with few qualifications and each time I you know I've got my degree I've got my master's I've got my PhD each time I've thought well I, I didn't believe I could do it mm. and in a sense getting the book finished um, showed me that I could other people around me believed I could but I didn't always 
But I think the biggest lesson for me is actually you can. Yeah. Um, and I think the final lesson is don't rush into writing a book because it is a lot of work. It's worth it. It's hugely rewarding. And, you know, I'm so looking forward to hearing from people who are using the method that I've devised, but there are easier ways to spend your life. And were you, so in the, when the process of writing, writing the book, were you finishing the postdoc and starting the job you're in now? So were you were like working full time? Um, for about six months, no, more than six months. I, I started my current role as lecturer in September last year. Okay. September 2019. And I submitted the manuscript in July 2020. And I didn't get the contract till, till September. So most of the time that I was working on the specific book, I've been working full time. So, and was the, the, that kind of doing two hours on it every day like in the morning, was that the way that you managed the kind of the balancing of the workload? Yeah, yeah. because prior to that, I, you know, I'd spent three years with, with my postdoc. I spent, you know, working on the book all the time. But, you know, a lot of that was research, you know, archive research, data analysis, um, redeveloping the method, um, you know, networking, meetings, etc. Um, and I did quite a lot of other projects alongside that. I did quite a lot of teaching um, at other places. So I did try to have a, a day a week on the book when I first started this role, but it, it wasn't manageable, partly because I can't write flat out for seven or eight hours at a go. Yeah. Um, and partly because however much you set aside a day, and lock yourself away and turn your email off people still find you and they still demand whereas somehow it's more acceptable when people knock on your door at eight o'clock in the morning and say have you got time for a meeting you can say i'm free at lunchtime or i'm free later um and that's okay so yeah just by i mean it's sort of one of those things that you you achieve it by chipping away a bit at a time and for me a couple of hours a day was the way to do it i know that for some people they write best you know, in big long chunks, maybe yeah. at the weekends, or they take a day away from the office. But and I think you have you know have to do what works for you. I would also say over the course of the whole project, what works for me has changed at different times. Um, you know, so be be responsive to that and be be okay with that. Thank you so much to Jonathan for a really fascinating discussion about the book publishing process about failure about rejection but also about finding and articulating your identity as an early career researcher and and placing yourself within your field moving forward and that's it for this episode don't forget to like rate and subscribe and join me next time where i'll be talking to somebody else about researchers development and everything in between Thank you.